to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. Ever since William F. Buckley published God and Man at Yale, in which he sharply criticized his alma mater as abandoning its traditional and conservative ethos, conservatives in America and the Western world generally have had a love-hate relationship with higher education. On the one hand, Many, if not most, of its governing elites possess a degree of some kind, often from the Ivies themselves. On the other hand, the constant, almost always one-way radicalization of scholarship in campus life makes many a conservative intellectual tear their hair out. This has gotten significantly worse in recent years, and between cancel culture and hostile administrations, conservatives are at a loss as to what to do stay and, and fight for a seemingly lost battle for existing institutions, or abandon them and perhaps even start something new. With me today to discuss these issues is Professor James Patterson of Ave Maria University. James, welcome. Great to be here. Happy to talk about this issue with you. So let me start with my first question, which I ask uh, all my guests. What brought you to this? Uh, everybody, it seems, or many people have an inflection point. Uh, the British philosopher Roger Scruton famously uh, reached the conclusion uh, towards the end of his life that uh, there was no option left of trying to fix what was, and we had to build everything from scratch. So when did you come to that conclusion? So the, uh, the trouble uh, with universities is something I've written about for a while, um, some of the first things I wrote for popular audiences were for Minding the Campus way back in 2012, I want to say. Uh, it was at the time the University of Virginia had thrown out their recently appointed president. And uh, the motivation for this was uh, that the, the chair of the Board of the Visitors wanted to install someone they regarded as more amenable to online courses, what uh, I think some people still uh, take seriously as MOOCs or massively open online courses. And so I, I've, you know, I wrote it on a few things about that. There, there's a kind of forgotten history of, uh, of this approach of trying to scale up uh, higher education. Uh, there was before in the 90s with the development of relatively inexpensive satellite technology and long-distance telephone usage, very early dial-up uh, stuff. There was something called distance learning that was basically the same model. And this goes all the way back to correspondence school. So uh, I was writing uh, in an effort to kind of tamp down on the enthusiasm that I saw a certain kind of conservative have for the uh, the online college and a big reason for it was that it looked like a tremendous waste of time and money given that the kinds of institutions that are necessary uh, are not the ones that are going to be low prestige uh, um, and I also strongly doubted that a lot of the people I saw 
in the conservative world recommending this option, actually sending their kids to these schools. And in the absence of any serious buy-in from elites, uh, what you get instead is that this is for everyone else. And that way, our you know, we all still send our kids to Stanford. Um, but, uh, you know, if you, if you want to send your kid to a school, they can log on uh, to a MOOC. Uh, this idea is... Uh, I think dead now, largely because uh, online college courses from COVID have illustrated that there's just no appetite, even from so-called digital natives, kids that grew up with iPhones, iPads, and the like. They just don't want this stuff at all. Um, but uh, another turning point for me, another sort of thing that that really drove me to write the original essay uh, was a conversation I'd had with uh, a mutual friend of ours, Sam Goldman, about how a lot of the people who we see as um, sort of beacons or or um, uh, enclaves in elite universities are really getting up there in the years. Um, you know, we have Harvey Mansfield retiring and uh, Jim Caesar, uh, the person who taught me at the University of Virginia, uh, may retire uh, reasonably soon. And uh, the the absence of any sense of replacement for them, there's not really going to be anyone who's going to take over their uh, their their positions. Means that over time, there actually may be no more conservative scholars because there's going to be no conservatives who will train them. Uh, and I became alarmed at the idea that instead of funding universities uh, or um, other institutions that might form conservative scholars, we might end up with a kind of overall disappearance everywhere outside of um, think tanks, which are, are fundamentally not the same thing. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about how important it is to, to start new institutions, in part because I don't think the idea of having these old enclaves where conservatives might hang on for a little bit longer is uh, is going to be uh, all that sustainable in the future, with one exception, and, and this is largely because of unique circumstances uh, at Princeton, which is the James Madison program, that might have some uh, some legs to it. Um, in a way, that's kind of the the uh, the attraction that uh, Princeton has uh, to a sort of underserved market of conservative elite students, but they've cornered that market, and that may be in part why you don't actually see other universities following suit. That's kind of Princeton's thing. So um, the the only alternative in my mind was for new institutions to form, and they're relatively inexpensive uh, if you know what you're doing. I say that uh, because, of course, now when I say in the piece you might need a billion dollars, that's nothing compared to what we're spending on infrastructure. So uh, I'm hoping to use that as a, <laughs> as a point of reference. So... Very fascinating, very interesting points. Uh, and your point about the online school especially is well taken. Uh, I very much enjoy I mean, he could be extremely acerbic, but uh, Phil Magnus in his book uh, Cracks in the Ivory Tower makes that point as well. Um, so if I may follow up, though, and maybe perhaps play a bit of devil's advocacy here. Um, certainly in recent years, and perhaps this has been a long-term trend, um, people who tend to occupy the spaces and positions that drive conservatives most crazy, the administrative class that occupies universities and bureaucracies and corporations and HR, 
people who, re who represent what James Burnham called the managerial class, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly tend not just democratic, but are either true believers or will cert are certainly uh, are uninterested uh, in rocking that boat. And they are more than likely uh, to be the ones who overwhelmingly send their kids uh, to universities, to the kind of universities where they will, their kids will then get those degrees and move on and have that influence. Is there even that much of a, of a market uh, left uh, of people who are interested and who are able and who are willing to buck that trend and perhaps create a balancing uh, conservative, liberal, libertarian, quote-unquote, normal mass? Or are we just fooling ourselves and that train has sailed? So this is a, a, a really important question, and I think my response is that uh, this is well taken, um, that uh, the kinds of people who are interested most of all, and especially the credentializing uh, feature of university education tend to be people who occupy the left or center-left position, especially with the, as you say, the sort of true believing managerial ethos and I don't, um, I don't disagree with that, uh, with that assessment, especially when it comes to the way institutions have taken shape over the few years, or really not over the few years, but since uh, the second, the end of the Second World War, and the kind of modern university t begins to take shape. Um, rather, what I would say is that there is an underserved market that maybe not as large. Uh, but all the same uh, is important for conservative people to uh, to s conservative scholars to to consider uh, when it comes to shaping uh, future generations. Uh, just to, I'm not sure um, if this is formally stated. I got this from talking to someone in um, Hillsdale at Hillsdale rather, and. Uh, he said that their acceptance rate for the coming freshman class, the class of um, 2025, was 20%. And what that means is that they've had an exceptionally high uh, application pool, uh, and they had to refuse a very large number of people. Um, my university, Ave Maria University, currently has the largest freshman class it's ever gotten, uh, and and uh, we're on track early uh, early on to repeat or maybe exceed that amount. Now, it's important to note that the kind of conservative we're talking about here is fairly broadly described. I think the the kind of conservative that goes to Hillsdale is the kind of conservative student, uh, if they're conservative, that's motivated by a kind of saving America kind of ethos. And at Ave Maria, it's much more about. Um, getting a, a serious Orthodox Catholic education. Um, and so in this respect, it's it's not quite right to standardize the conservative uh, curriculum. Uh, I do that a little bit in the essay at Law and Liberty, uh, primarily out of concern for space. I wanted to make sure that uh, I didn't go down all of these little revisions about what the term means. Uh, but it does uh, bear on the point that you're making that um, rather than think about it uh, purely in terms of a kind of red versus blue, uh, what you might say is that there are uh, smaller populations of people out there that are interested perhaps 
and a kind of Orthodox evangelical Protestant, uh, some kind of conservative or Orthodox Jewish experience, or some sort of Catholic uh, uh, experience that more accords with the diversity in higher education we used to have in greater amount, a point that was uh, frequently made by the late Peter Augustine Lawler, uh, that uh, the standardization of higher education has led to a decrease in diversity, uh, meaning that you have R2s, which are master's degree granting institutions, or R1s, which are PhD ones, either public or private. But wherever you go, generally speaking, the curriculum received is largely the same, sort of half-baked, uh, mandatory courses, uh, and then majors that are overwhelmingly flooded with people either seeking high prestige or professional school um, uh, degrees, depending on the, the nature of the institution, they don't have to be this way. Uh, the, uh, you can have real liberal arts education, you can have seminary training, uh, there are, uh, and these sorts of alternatives often, I've, uh, I think, are the ones that conservatives take more seriously. The thing that's most important is that we can't delude ourselves into thinking that um, that an online option uh, will work, or that the, the specific conservative ideas that are often in demand uh, from these populations can really occupy the same ground as uh, existing elite institutions that are, seem to be overwhelmingly committed to a kind of progressive mission uh, as they start to sort of slowly shed the, the vestiges of a kind of old conservative enclave or the toleration of, of free speech, in, uh, including um, the speech of conservatives. So uh, it is, I think your point, uh, it, it is very good. Um, it's, it's, and I'm not here to say that, uh, uh, that there is this sort of untapped market of conservative students. The one last thing I would say, uh, I mean, like writ large, like as large as the sort of general market is, I would say that there is one concern uh, that a lot of people in higher education have, and that is that there's a, demogra a demographic cliff around, um, let's see here, when was, how long ago was 2008? 13 years ago? Yeah, so we're coming up on a demographic cliff in, a, in like four or five years. Uh, in which the number of uh, children born just went down, and this is this corresponds to uh, the 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 2008 housing crisis and the downturn in the market. Uh, what's odd uh, is that this will probably affect more secular small liberal arts colleges uh, than it will places like Ave Maria, because the families that continued to have children during this period uh, were religious uh, families. Uh, and so the, there's like this, there's like this, uh, this waking up in a cold sweat in a lot of admissions offices all over the place, uh, over this fear, uh, and that might actually end up structuring a lot of what I talk about in the uh, the essay uh, than any of the um, any of the current uh, sort of structures of market demand, considering they're going to shift so dramatically uh, in just a few years. Oh, we'll just have to see uh, how that demographic uh, cliff shakes out. But that's an excellent segue uh, into my next question, which is this. Um, one of the things that I'm sure does just frustrate myself, but a lot of other people, is that we're going to set up something new. We'll set up something amazing. We'll, 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 we'll set up something with the best scholars, the best people, the best administrations. But then always lurking in the background is uh, Conquest's famous, Robert Conquest's famous second law, 
that any institution not explicitly right-wing becomes left-wing over time. Uh, and I think that in the case of universities, there seem to be two or perhaps the same competing pressures. One of these is that, um, like we mentioned before, the administrative class is uh, the kind of people you, you would hire in any new university or college or whatever, uh, will not necessarily be politically or ideologically committed uh, to, that, to that institution's mission. And once they move up the ranks enough, uh, they eventually take over or neuter uh, whatever uh, conservative, uh, however broadly you want to define conservative, uh, tendencies the institution had, and then remake it in their own image. Uh, and then the second and no less important competing pressure is, um, and this is something I wonder about, is that, you know, thank God, as you mentioned in your own, uh, as you mentioned in your own essay, universities are no longer uh, the preserve exclusively of people who are white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant. Uh, and you know, any American citizen who wants to and can afford to or can get uh, support from the federal government can go to university. Um, and the increasing demands of the customers, the people who pay the tuition, the people who pay uh, the people who pay their professors and administrators salary can then have an enormous amount of market power. And, and even if they're a small minority, as they often are, even of the group they claim to represent, they can nevertheless uh, force a lot of changes down the institution's throat. And a demographic cliff uh, could actually even make that worse in much the same way in the other beneficial direction uh, that the uh, recent uh, decline in uh, the labor force due to COVID means that the workers who are still around have an enormous amount of bargaining power. So how would, won't even name a specific institution, how would a theoretical institution deal with these competing pressures in a way that's not too extreme? Uh, so there, there's a lot going on right now. And uh, I think a lot of what people thought was going to be the future of higher education um, has uh, is up for revision. In part, what I was trying to do in the essay was was to, was to point in that direction. Um, when it comes to the conquest statement, this is very true. But conquest statement is especially true when it comes to uh, a, a higher education environment where. The, the government is responsible for funding uh, the students. In uh, the United States, a big part of what's enabled large numbers of people who otherwise couldn't afford a university education to attend has been in the form of public assistance uh, through subsidies at the federal level. These subsidies at the federal level uh, are, are attached to uh, regulations that the the federal government requires universities to obey if they are to be qualified to receive that money, and so a big part of what drives universities uh, as institutions to head towards a progressive kind of monoculture is that the monoculture is one that's often demanded of these re from these regulations. There's uh, and hence the the regulations also create a demand for these administrators whose response responsibility is to uh, to enforce the terms of these uh, these 
uh, regulations. And as regulations and higher education expand, so does the, de- the, the necessary demand for this kind of labor. And so one of the reasons that we see administrative bloat at universities is not because of, uh, of any particular um, malfeasance unique to university administrators, although there's plenty of that, as we saw in the case at Yale Law School. It's also because universities need to keep up with uh, regulatory compliance, and often the only way they na- they know to do that is to hire more people that can help in this regard. And um, the uh, so that one of the one of the things aside from students demanding this at a certain level. Uh, is also the federal government demanding it, but the student demand, like I said, in the essay is very real. In fact, you'll, you know, when it comes to that, the case of um, the the law student at Yale University, uh, I think his name was Trent Colbert, or I may, maybe misremembering his first name, uh, was um, uh, was that he he was writing a, an invitation to fellow students to attend a party put on by uh, a Native American law student association at Yale Law School, and he used a term that was considered racially coded, and almost immediately he was uh, placed under um, suspicion by fellow students who sought to un, um, to undo him, perhaps because it's alleged uh, uh, because he was also a member of the Federalist Society, Colbert was a member of the Federalist Society, and hence uh, was conservative with a target on his back. Uh, this this is the kind of ed- demand that students will make that encourages uh, the uh, universities to keep uh, administrators on staff to deal with these very questions, but uh, it's important to note that there are multiple causes for these administrators to be there. Uh, and so the solution is, uh, if you are to start a new institution, is to start one that does not have any reliance on federal subsidies because the federal subsidies are what help invite in a culture of administration and the notion that administrators are, are there to serve students um, and, their, and their every whim. Uh, a big part of what administrators do on campus is attempt to conciliate and remedy all the problems that students have. And the reason for this uh, need for uh, administrators to do this is the fear that the students will leave. Uh, and being a tuition-driven university uh, means that you have to constantly cave to student demands uh, out of fear that your retention rates will go down. Uh, and this is why I place so much emphasis in my essay on the need to fundraise to the point that you have an endowment that can cover the the fundamental costs of the university. Otherwise, you're going to be constantly pressured by undergraduate uh, tuition demands and by administrative compliance if you take federal money. Uh, it's a very hard lift. I don't say this as something that's easy, but it's what I call the Hillsdale model. They're the ones who have uh, figured this out. Uh, uh, they're now to the point where you know their fundraising is so capacious that they might even be able to do away with tuition altogether. And what that does is it frees the, uh, their ability to select students that they see as aligning with the mission of the, uh, the college or university. And the reason why this is necessary is that back in the old days, uh, when there was not really a lot of regulation of higher education and uh, the courses could be much smaller and the curriculum much narrower, uh, it, the way that a lot of these places uh, uh, subsisted or even thrived was on the basis uh, not just of alumni giving, but of also denominational giving. And there's not really that same kind of structure in place. And so um, the only uh, and the only way that I really see the ability for institutions to muster the capital to do what they need to do is to uh, go on the kind of large-scale gift search 
um, that you find at places like uh, at Hillsdale. And, and they've, they've succeeded, I think, at this point in gathering together a $900 million endowment, uh, and they don't take a single dollar of federal money. Uh, and that's very unimpressive. That's a very impressive accomplishment. There's no reason why other institutions couldn't do the same. Um, and one last thing on this is that uh, Hillsdale has kind of accumulated a certain amount of expertise. They certainly, if they so desired, could actually franchise that prestige out uh, or uh, create a kind of a consultancy basis for, uh, for achieving that kind of model. I talked to a few, I was actually at Hillsdale a couple weeks ago and floated the idea to some to some people up there and um, you know nothing yet but uh, I, I think it would be a, it would be a very interesting move so interesting suggestions um, it's uh, it's an important it's definitely those are definitely uh, good ideas and uh, it, all, it even uh, meshes with the general American conservative ethos of being as depend as having as little dependency as possible on the government, especially the federal government. Um, but I thought I might uh, then press the issue. Okay, federal government's out of the way, the university is immunized, you, uh, the students who come in understand what they're getting into, the, there's no need for, there's no need for uh, woke administrators. But then there's another issue, and that is that peer pressure can be uh, just as stifling as any administrative rule, uh, as our felt as our uh, mutual uh, colleague uh, Sam Goldman put it. Uh, the modern research university does not really tend itself uh, in favor of uh, in favor of conservative. Uh, scholars and in fact part of the problem of the research system for promotion is that it means everybody is mutually dependent on any everybody and that means that there are multiple veto points that could kill even a good professor because they don't like what you have to say and you don't get published in specific journals and you're not invited to specific conferences and that in itself already is um that all, that in itself could be a, a disincentive uh, for a lot of uh, smart people who are on the conservative uh, side. How would you uh, suggest uh, dealing with that sort of an issue? So this is, uh, I mean, like I'm not getting any easy questions from you, and I'm very unhappy about this. <laughs> no, but joke, jokes aside. Uh, I apologize. Oh, no. <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, so I, as you were saying this, it reminded me... Um, uh, over the uh, over the end of the summer, uh, we had uh, this fracas at the American Political Science Association. Uh, a member, I forget his first name, but Eastland um, uh, at Claremont um, was uh, the Claremont Institute was canceled by APSA because he was one of the authors of the January sixth memo. Um, that said that the that you know what what the Trump administration could do in the event that there was some kind of fraud in the election. I, I actually am not all that familiar with it because I try to stay out of all that stuff. But uh, what it meant was that uh, all of the Claremont panels were moved from being in person to online, and this led to a number of conservative scholars at APSA effectively to walk out. Uh, and and the 
In the, in the period afterwards, we heard from Joe Postel at Hillsdale, the idea of creating a kind of conservative APSA, and then the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI, uh, President uh, Michael uh, Birdka came out and said that he wanted to do something very similar uh, to having a kind of uh, conference at which conservative political scientists could meet as well. And so there was this unusual moment where you saw not only the possibility of a bifurcation in uh, university systems, but also a bifurcation in scholarly work. Uh, in fact, Burke cited my essay on the need for new universities in his own that he wrote for Newsweek. And so it's not just that we're probably going to see a bifurcation in universities, but also in the qualifications for promotion uh, for university faculties. Uh, and the conservative uh, promotion might actually start referring to specific journals that are uh, or or books uh, that you would need to a book pu publishing houses you would need to publish on right it's like uh, it, it, it if it goes that deep that's really a shame um, in fact uh, a big problem with the sort of standard promotional um, approach has historically been that if you're a conservative you need to publish twice as much because you write for the uh, publications that you want to write for and then the ones that you have to write for. Uh, and you don't get any credit for the first category. Uh, now that would it would seem to mean that uh, if we have this division, even if it's regrettable that there's essentially no cross uh, pollination between two sides, that at least conservatives don't have to do twice the work anymore. But there's a danger here as well, which is that uh, conservative scholars often have an advantage in that they're aware both of the debates within the progressive circles as well as ones that are peculiar to conservatives but there could be this kind of co-insularity where conservatives only talk to each other publish for each other and promote each other uh, and the difference would be that there's actually fewer opportunities for conservative uh, um, scholars to find development because there are fewer places that have graduate schools uh, for their development you know there's the University of Dallas Hillsdale itself uh, there's some corners at Princeton you can still uh, work your way through, maybe parts of the University of Notre Dame. And these are very small circles, and so uh, it, this can be a bit of a problem when it comes to ensuring that you're getting all of the best scholars on the right to, to work their way through the system. And uh, it also means that in case you're a person who upsets someone, that you're probably frozen out from ever getting published. Um, so these are like really niche concerns that come from experience in academia and myself. But they're, they're um, part of the issue um, that I see emerging, uh, which is that uh, there's, there's almost these parallel institutions of conservatives emerging in, uh, in, um, from, from the kind of progressive uh, closet, right? There's this uh, uh, great book by Josh Dunn and John D uh, Shields called Passing on the Right. And the idea here is that uh, conservatives will also will often pretend to be progressive and they'll come out of the closet after tenure. Uh, and <clears throat> it's so hard now for conservatives even to stay in the closet because they have these digital track records uh, that they don't that they don't bother. Uh, and hence, there is this increased demand from a lot of conservatives I know. In fact, when I wrote my piece, I got tons of uh, conservative scholars on the job market begging for this to happen. If I knew anything about whether this is going to happen, because they don't think they're ever going to get placed, um, that the doors closed and them ever getting placed. Uh, so there would be a real waste if um, 
these parallel institutions don't emerge soon because there are going to be all these incredible scholars who can't find work anywhere. Um, uh, but in the meantime, what I suspect will happen is that Burkhub will start that rival APSA. I'm sure Hillsdale will have a rival APSA if they decide uh, that they want to. I'm sure they can do it. They certainly have the institutional capacity. And that might mean, uh, ironically, that might mean like a major scaling back of APSA because uh, conservatives go and their panels are extremely well attended. Uh, APSA, by the way, meaning the American Political Science Association annual meeting. This is the sort of mainstream political science association. But if half of the faculty who attend uh, stop going, you might see a, a serious scaling back. Um, and that would be very funny to me. Um, although, um, sort of sad, right? It's, it's not supposed to go like this, but I mean, there's only so much, uh, there's only so much, um, bias one can endure. And to be honest, I felt like a lot of people at ABSA were just looking for an excuse, even though Eastland certainly furnished them a good one. Yeah, it's 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 definitely regrettable. I mean, uh, I personally, uh, I'm a professor's son, and even though I quote unquote only have a BA, I very much uh, I love scholarship. I love learning. Uh, but if the situation is bad, then you have to make the best of it. And if parallel institutions have to compete with one another, uh, at least for a time, then you know it's better it's better than what seems to be happening now which is either uh, uh, an insane siege mentality almost a masada mentality or a feeling that all is lost and it should all let be burned down you know so at the very least that would provide a positive direction um i would however uh, like to add and with that once again a great segue to my next question which is uh, something i've been uh, thinking about and i don't know the answer to so maybe you can help me here um one of the things that really frustrated me uh, in recent years, when people talk about the importance of free speech on campus, free speech in the classroom, and so forth, which I'm very much in favor of free speech. My crazy ideal university is a world where, you know, uh, atheists and fundamentalists and everybody in between uh, debate and, and reason, and the same is true uh, politically. Uh, but in an article I wrote, I don't usually to my, to my horn, but I will here. Uh, in an article I wrote, I said, let us imagine a world where somehow, magically, uh, all that is stopped. Free speech is all back to whatever uh, utopia or near utopia that used to exist. And now, uh, and now people on the right have to start marketing their wares on the, in the free market of ideas. And, and I really asked, and I asked sincerely, not as a troll, what does it mean to have a conservative approach to let's be usually we're not talking about science because hard science has its own methods and, and 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 but we're usually talking about the liberal arts the humanities and to some extent the social sciences what does that even mean what where will we even begin uh, and one thing that frustrated me uh when i asked that question was it was then asked in national review uh, of a number of scholars who are on the right uh and with one exception of someone who work, who who uh, also work, works at a think tank in addition to working in a university, the answer was, we are not conservatives, we are effectively neutral. And it really reminded me of the kind of frustration 
that a lot of people on the right had toward the old WASP elite who basically said, we are umpires, we are Tories, we, you know, we'll sometimes give you a win if we think you're in the right, we'll sometimes give the left a win when we're in the right. But that doesn't really say much. What exactly, it means that there's no, it means that there's an umpire, there's one team, and there's nobody on the other team. So what what exactly, uh, at the end of this long, meandering ramble, what do you think is or are the conservative ideas that one can bring to the scholarship table uh, in yours or other fields and that can be argued and advocated for, not just the neutral principles of the game? So I, um, you know, I, as a... As a Catholic teaching at a Catholic university, I have very little um, love for this idea of a kind of calling balls and strikes neutrality. Um, you know, I plant my 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 golden white flag with uh, you know Peter's keys and and all that uh, very very strongly. Uh, but I have no problem with uh, the university's mission, in part being dedicated to the promulgation of Catholic liberal arts tradition, uh, with an emphasis on its Catholicism. And that kind of mission entails a free discourse that uh, would generate, you know, a uh, a, a fair amount of deliberation and debate, which we have as faculty members here, but also among the students. Uh, but there is definitely a mission uh, that we are all attempting to serve, which is the continuation of the Catholic liberal arts tradition, as well as uh, to give uh, to give honor to the church and to uh, conduct the great commission of spreading the gospel. I have a very good friend of mine who is at a Baptist seminary, and uh, they feel the same way about what they're doing uh, for the Protestant Christian tradition, especially as it's been transmitted by the Baptists in America and through missionary activity uh, across the world. Uh, and so this idea of there being a kind of neutrality seems always a little silly. Uh, if you go to Hillsdale, they have a kind of general Judeo-Christian commitment in which they try to forge some kind of common basis for understanding and then use that as um, a foundation for redeeming American politics in uh, and a return to the founding and maybe also a kind of updating of the founding to meet current circumstances, but always a commitment back to the founding. So these are the kinds of missions you can have. Uh, and one of the things, I, I, I remember this National Review thing you're talking about, but it's been a while since I've even, even thought about it. Um, what happens to conservatives uh, who are well-positioned in the university is that they're usually alone. Uh, and because they're usually alone, they have to be very careful when writing publicly to uh, to speak in a way that uh, prevents them from having to deal with negative consequences at their institution. Uh, moreover, this sense of feeling alone can also lead to a sense of needing to compromise in order to get along uh, with the majority position. Uh, and finally, uh, an issue that stems uh, from both of these is uh, a, a kind of sense that uh, in order to belong to these elite institutions that they do, there's something de classe about sympathizing with people who have a kind of unironic appreciation for the American state or a very serious faith in, say, traditional Judaism, uh, there's always this sense of being a little embarrassed for the, the people you're supposed to stand in for. 
Um, and uh, th this kind of pressure, being alone, being, you know, uh, associated with déclassé ideas and uh, and a sense of fear, th this, this uh, drives you towards this position of wanting to appear as milquetoast in your commitment to the things you're nominally committed to. Uh, because that way... Um, because all of the power is on the side of people who are hostile to your position, uh, you can um, reduce the liability of rec uh, of some kind of retribution on that side. But also because no one's going to substitute for your position on the right, you can essentially sell them out whenever necessary. And I think a lot of this is what motivates some of the more post-liberal uh, things that we see sort of becoming part of um, public discourse kind of moving into Substack and out of um, uh, and out of lecture halls, but uh, the uh, the idea here is this repudiation of neutrality. That's a big part of what post liberals argue. I think stems from this frustration. Their their project ultimately has its own problems that I don't think are really all that uh, solvable for the uh, for the better. But you can at least understand the impetus for the hostility towards. Uh, what you, I think, very rightly described as a kind of recurrence back to this WASPy, uh, you know, uh, distributing of benefits, whatever conservative uh, gatekeepers decide that this is something that they like. Uh, this is why, like, on the uh, among people who are pro-life, you frequently hear that the greatest fear that most um, conservatives have is that Roe versus Wade actually would be overturned, uh, because then the, a lot of people who are actually pretty ambivalent on the issue would suddenly have to keep campaign promises they never thought they would have to uh and so um and in that case if there was this recurrence back to a kind of neutrality position uh there would be a a, a real conflagration within the uh within the conservative movement uh at last um but uh uh, when it comes to sort of what what we've sort of called conservative ink, uh, folks that often tend to uh, recur to some kind of moderate conservative position because it's the lowest risk variety. Um, I think all the incentives are are there, and one of the ways to to remedy those uh, that that situation is to shift the 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 consensus so that I'm sorry the incentives so that they can actually stand for the actual ideas that they're supposed to believe in. This would mean that they'd be able to hold uh, elite or uh, uh, otherwise high status, high prestige positions at these parallel institutions uh, so that they're not alone. They are reinforced by, by colleagues rather than detracted. Uh, and uh, when I say all this in criticism of sort of milquetoast variety of conservatism, it's not like, uh, you know, surely not I, Lord. I'm not like, you know, jumping uh, out and saying I would do so much better. Uh, this is hard, and it happens over the course of, a lo uh, of many years where you think you're going to be able to hold the line, but it, it's very difficult to do this kind of stuff. To, to remain as conservative as you once were uh, when you are constantly uh, uh, eroding the uh, conservatism against the, the conditions that you operate under. Well, uh, it's definitely going to be a long, hard road, no doubt. Uh, but I, even though I tend toward pessimism in academia nowadays, I, I, I guess I feel that your and other people are at the very least pointing to something of a positive direction and you've provided some interesting uh, positive directions even though uh, the paths are no doubt filled with potholes uh, potholes and bad detours 
I think nevertheless, we could be seeing a resurgence or at least a fortification of those people who are interested in conservative ideas, whether they be liberal or religious or, uh, or, or neutral. Um, Professor Patterson, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much, uh, and especially for the hard questions, uh, because uh, I think they're the ones that a lot of people also want to ask. Uh, so I hopefully I gestured at good answers, even if they weren't always as good as I wanted them to be. That's the, that's the point of the road.